to the Disruptors Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Johnson. The advent of syndicates, roll-up vehicles, and social networking have torn down many of the gatekeepers and walls in traditional venture. And a new wave of hyper-connected operator angels and emerging managers are taking advantage. A great example of this is Paige Finn Doherty, who in an extremely compressed timeframe has built out an incredibly broad network of founders and VCs, has syndicated several deals, stood up her own early stage fund, and even had time to write a book about venture capital. And in this conversation, we talk about how she did it, the opportunities that she sees for other emerging managers, her thesis around the future of work and play, We have a sidebar conversation about Web3 and much, much more. Great conversation. Paige is super impressive. I think you'll get a lot out of it. And with that, let's go to Paige. All right, Paige, thank you so much for doing this. I've been excited. I've been following you for a while on Twitter, as I imagine most folks who found you have. Mm -hmm. And I think we were talking right at the beginning. I feel like you are kind of representative of a new paradigm shift that's happening in venture that I think is really exciting and a lot of things are contributing to it. So I'd love to dig into that, but I'd love to actually get started with, you wrote a book for kids on venture capital and I'd love to learn about what was the inspiration for that and why kids need to know about venture and tell me a little bit about that journey. Yeah, absolutely. It was actually never set out to write a children's book. But when I was growing up, I always loved reading and writing specifically. I never knew that I wanted to be a venture capitalist by any means, but I always loved writing and wanted to incorporate that into what I was doing. And so I developed this interest for ventures on Twitter. One of my friends, Nikhil, he has this really great healthcare newsletter called Out of Pocket. I had presented at one of his speaker events where you talk about a niche interest of yours. I talked about spatial audio. And I remember he tweeted like that the week after I spoke at his event that he was writing an illustrated children's book about clinical trials. Mm -hmm. And I just thought it was such a creative medium to be able to explain something very complicated in the context of something that... Uh, a child can understand. I would say education and providing like educational content is really important to me. And mm-hmm. I thought, I literally retweeted it and I was like, would anyone read a book like this about venture? And then I got 80 emails in my DMs. And at the time I had like maybe like a thousand or something followers. Like, and so 80 like DMs was quite overwhelming signal that it was something people were interested in. And mm-hmm. so I was like, okay, awesome. Now I have the format. So I kind of like think about the process of creation through constraints. So I wanted like a couple of different constraints. So now I had the medium, which was like an illustrated children's book for adults. Mm -hmm. And then I had what the context was. So I wanted it to be about venture and explaining it. This was context for was I was living at my parents' house during COVID. And they were like, all right, Paige, you you just go like, you can't keep talking about venture capital, like Twitter stuff at the dinner table if we don't have like a foundation for it. And I was like, I'll just write one, like it's fine. And so I had this like little doodle of how um, money flows through the ecosystem and how capital is transferred from limited partners to general partners who run funds and deploy capital into startups, which essentially the earliest stages you're investing in the people that run them. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, I, I, had no idea what I was going to write it about. I woke up one day with a dream about this farmer who tends their crops and watches them grow. Some of them don't make it through some of the seasons and some of them go on to become large trees and like bear fruit and get harvested. And I thought that that was a really powerful metaphor for a lot of what the job as an investor is. Mm-hmm. Uh, like your job as an investor is to like identify those seeds and then nurture them. But ultimately like they're responsible for their own destiny and you can only do so much. Mm-hmm. So that's how it started. Uh, and then I raised to go fund me to hire a professional illustrator, ended up hiring my brother, Owen. His work is incredible. I did a bunch of test pages with other folks I had met through Twitter, the internet and his blew me away. So from start to fit from tweet to self-publishing on Amazon was July to May 26th. I published wow. it the day I walked across the stage SDSU to graduate a wow. year later. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. That, I mean, I think that that in a microcosm, I think is a good uh, case study in how it sounds like your career has gone sort of in general so far, which is to say, I get asked 
often by by students, former students, things like that. Like, how did you break into venture? And there's been historically kind of a, a path that one takes to do it. And then and I deviated from it a little bit in the sense that I didn't come from a pedigree mm-hmm. university. I wasn't at a rocket ship prior. It was more of an operator, that kind of thing. But like you, you, you have just literally completely broken the mold in terms <laughs> of how one has done it. And it's just, I think it's really interesting. And I think it, it's at a minimum, it doesn't seem like you were constrained by here's how one typically goes about doing this. And you've, you've rewritten or played a role in rewriting a lot of those rules. And so I'd love for folks to hear how someone like yourself in such a brief period of time managed to do this. Great question. I think that it's interesting to consider it as like a, such a short amount of time. So I first learned about venture when I was 19 mm-hmm. and I binge watched Silicon Valley on like HBO seven day free trial. Yeah. And before then, I just thought it was like a bunch of old dudes, like sitting in the mahogany library, smoking cigars, picking their like friends to invest in. Yeah. And then when I saw a really strong, you know, female role models, like in venture, I was like, oh, this is so cool. Like, you don't have to come from generational wealth to do this. Like, there aren't the level of constraints that I thought that there were in venture. I would say there are some elements of pattern recognition that mean like a lot of folks who see a path will be able to follow it. And so it's been really cool seeing my journey where I am at, at heart a content creator. And, and to me, that means like providing educational content about what I'm learning in venture mm-hmm. in the hopes that the next generation of venture investors can better understand like the context and the climate and of course take my work with a grain of salt because I'm still learning myself. But I think that building a platform specifically for me on Twitter, but I think you can do it on different social platforms. There's been examples of folks building platforms on TikTok or Instagram or LinkedIn or Twitter. Mm -hmm. And I think that funds have become an interesting way for creators to basically monetize the platforms that they have. Mm -hmm. And so it's been really cool to see there's like a rising crop of folks who have built platforms like Matt Conwell was like the blueprint. He was one of the earliest folks to start a rolling fund mm-hmm. and like really use his like Twitter presence to do that. Sawhill, Love and Gia at Gumroad did the same. So I think there's like, there's something to be said for the consistency and amount of effort that it takes to build a niche platform and then yeah. meet really cool founders that are building in your area of interest. And then at the same time, you have folks that have capital and the resources to support you, but they're not on the ground level seeing what you're seeing because they're like at a different abstraction layer. Yeah. So I I think like realizing that everyone is just a person, there's a part of me that also saw investment banking and I was like, that, like, I just heard like all these horror stories and I was like, I don't, that doesn't feel like I want it to be part of my journey. And I want to like put in the work and like work really hard to earn my position. But yeah, yeah that didn't feel like it aligned with what I wanted. And I think that's a common theme within my generation or Gen Z specifically is folks are being really, are listening to their intuition about like what they're aligned with and being very like rigorous about what aligns with them and their values and what they want to do. Yeah. Yeah. Their interests. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd love to break that down a little bit. Cause I mean, there's a couple of things that I I've picked up already. So one is um, obviously the importance of, the, the your your platform has been a huge kind of piece of enabling a lot of this. And mm-hmm. I the class I teach at Kellogg is a digital marketing class, and I, I I go on a five to ten minute rant at one point or another every single semester where I say, listen, everything that we're talking about, other than maybe paid marketing, but even that, if you wanted to, every single thing that we're talking about, you could apply to your own career. And every good thing that has happened in my career has been a function of kind of building a platform, like creating content, sharing it, like having a point of view, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And there is no better investment that one could make in their career than trying to build something like that up. And it's not a two month project. It's a, it's a career long project, but the the rewards can be immense. So you obviously understood that right away. How did you go about doing it? Or like, if there was a, if a, someone fresh out of school wanted to do the same thing, like what would your advice be to them on What's Paige's playbook, I guess, so to speak, on how to platform building? <laughs> yeah, I think it's interesting because I did it on accident at the beginning. I was just like, I have this niche interest. I don't know, not a lot of like 22-year-olds that I knew had like 
raging passion for understanding venture. And so I was just really excited to be in a, in a room in quotation marks on Twitter with other folks who are just as excited about it as I mm-hmm. was. And so I just, I, I don't know, I was just vibing on Twitter. I was like, make, I wanted to like learn how to use the platform. And so I would make threads. I would, I got like a masterclass subscription through San Diego State and I would make threads about what I would learn from different masterclasses. So, and some of those ended up like getting a lot of attention. I had like a couple of tweets. One was like dating an entrepreneur is like full-time training for a chief of staff position. The other one was like masterclass has the ad budget of Shen Yun. And then like when those tweets started to get like a couple of those went like very viral. Um, I remember someone from the New York Times DM me. It was like, Hey, we're, writing a story about masterclass. And I was like, this is it. This is my big break (laughs) and never ended up publishing that article. But I I think it was interesting. I was like, Oh, okay, cool. If if I'm publishing tweets that are less niche and around my interest, then I'll gain followers that are like also less niche and maybe not as aligned to what I'm interested in. So let me like create content that's really aligned with what I'm learning and what I'm interested in. And hopefully we'll attract people that want to like build like Lego blocks. Mm-hmm. I think the com- like composability, uh, this is something that Packy McCormick talks a lot about in his writing, but the composability of your content is what's really important. So it's like laying the foundation that other people can build upon or reference. I think mm-hmm. like, for example, in scholarly papers, like the more something gets referenced, the more effective of the paper that it's determined to be. And you can't tell that from the onset. It takes years for that to accumulate. So what I focus on is like building content that is composable. People can build upon it. Two is like educational. I try and look at things through the beginner's mind and think about the questions that I was having going through the process of learning it. And what's like the urgent need? What do you need to understand that when you're reading legal docs and you don't know like what questions to ask or you're like thinking about raising a fund, like what does that look like from a logistic perspective? All the stuff that people aren't talking about. So like finding those gaps, but I think to start and get less nervous because it can be really scary to publish is just thinking about curation. So if you Mm -hmm. see something cool, you screenshot it, tweet about it. Andrea from the snapshot is really great at this. She has built an incredible platform screenshotting and sharing really great like D to C branding or community efforts or trends that she's seeing. And so Mm -hmm. if you aren't at the level where you feel like you have a lot of original content. I think curation is an incredible way to get familiar with the platform, build a community, and then you can continue to like weave in more original content. Yeah. You figure out your voice as you go thing. Yeah. 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 Related to that, it seems like you mentioned different platforms have played your superpowers. One of the things that is unique, I think maybe about Twitter relative to maybe some Mm -hmm. of those others, at least as it relates to venture and startup, startup land is its power as a networking tool as well. And so it seems like you've managed to Use your content certainly played a huge role in that, right? But it also seems like use, using it to build relationships. So I'd love to hear about maybe what you've learned about using Twitter as a quote unquote networking tool or as a mechanism to build up the kinds of the, the kind of support system, I guess you could say around yourself that you would need to to start doing some of this stuff. Yeah. Um Honestly, I was, I was talking about this on the podcast with um, Jason Calacanis a couple weeks ago, but it really was the genesis of so many of my relationships that I built within Venture. It was how I met the first founder that I invested in through a syndicate. And for those of your listeners not familiar, a syndicate is a loosely coupled group of investors that usually invest through a single entity organized by someone called a syndicate lead. So that's what I did before we started buying Genius Ventures. I met a ton of the people that invest in my syndicate and into Behind Genius Ventures. I think some of my favorite moments were, I think I had written a piece on how scary it was to lead a syndicate. I was like, not enough people talk about this, but it can feel really scary to put yourself in a position where you could fail. I was like, I have 50K of allocation. I need to raise it. I can't publicly solicit you're tweeting and being like, Hey, I'm raising for like X, Y, and Z. Like that's public solicitation. You can like get in trouble with the SEC for that. Although I think a lot of folks aren't paying attention to that on Twitter recently, but I was like, okay, how do I do this? And there was this moment of nerves. And I remember Andy Wiseman at, at Union Square Ventures, who I had looked up to 
for a lot of different reasons. I think he's an incredible writer and a very thoughtful investor. Reached out and he was like, hey, like, I really liked your thread on this. And I appreciate that you touched on how nervous you were. Like, I still get nervous when I'm sending term sheets out for like Series A deals at, at USB and like <coughs> rooting for you. And that was the beginning of like him really being like a bigger part of my life. He was like one of the first people to commit to Behind Genius Ventures and supported me in the ecosystem. Um, when you talk about like this new guard of venture, mm-hmm. he was one that introduced me to Natasha Tiku at the Washington Post who wrote an incredible story in April about how Gen Z women are breaking into the Venture Boys Club, which is one of my favorite articles. I think she just did such a great job telling the story of, of kind of like this new guard coming in and yeah. shining a light on that. He was the one that made the introduction there. And it's just been like, always responds with really thoughtful questions. So he's one of the people that was was a big part of my journey early on is, and has continued to be. Mm-hmm. And then just like, I don't know. There's just been folks where I like see an announcement of theirs and they've raised a new fund or they raised like a new round of funding. And I'm just like, yeah. Oh my gosh, like congratulations. Super stoked for you. Yeah. And like a lot of times they're right back. These are people that are raising like billion dollar funds or like just yeah. raised their series D for their startup. Or it's like someone just getting started. And like, I had a message with them from ages ago and I'm like, Hey, this is awesome. Like, I'm super excited for you. Yeah. And a lot of times people write back and they're like, Thanks so much. Which I, I think that like crazy that folks are that accessible going to school in at San Diego State. Like I wasn't growing up in Silicon Valley. Like San yeah. Diego is a very well connected entrepreneurial ecosystem. Yeah. But it, it wasn't like super crazy by any means. But I could talk to like anyone, anyone, anywhere in the world that was like doing really cool things in my industry. So yeah, Twitter was, has been an incredible part of. How I've gotten to where I am today. Well, and it seems like the third leg of that is, is all right, so you've got, <clears throat> you have a point of view, which informs, I would assume, things like thesis and things like that, which I think we'll get into mm-hmm. in a little bit. Network, which leads to down the road LPs and things like that. But then the third is mm-hmm. deal flow, which I think is one of the things that a lot of people struggle with when they, or they, it, it seems daunting to them. Like, how, how do I, how do I find deals and things like that? It seems like Twitter has been super instrumental, I would think for that too. So can you walk through maybe the, the, that third leg of it in terms of how does one go from, I don't know a soul, I'm just interested in it to now I have proprietary deal flow, that kind of thing. <laughs> it's so funny that you say that I was actually like, going to make a joke about <laughs> proprietary deal flow. So this is something that I like didn't under, I worked at a growth equity fund when I was a senior in college as, as an intern. Mm-hmm. And I remember them always talking about like proprietary deal flow. I'm like, what is that? What yeah. does that mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's a it's a shorthand way for basically like people send you deals or like mm-hmm. people reach out to you cold. Like that's proprietary deal flow. It yep. can also be like outbound, but it's basically like your special sauce. And when I was at TBC, like I learned cold calling. Like I would cold call all of these entrepreneurs that Country said was doing like three million air on and be like, hi, like I'm an intern here. Would you like to hear about the opportunities of like partnering with us? And I think like doing hundreds of cold calls, not, I I mean, I wasn't like, I had some training, but I think like cold calling prepared me in a way for like finding deal flow in a way that I didn't, I don't think that's like very common um, anymore or it wasn't with my friends that I talked to. Um, But now I would say it's like, as we've continued to build a community across investors and founders, operators that we work with, a lot of it is coming from folks who are familiar with what we focus on at at B2B, which is like first the stage. So we do pre-seed and seed only word first checks. We do some follow on through SPVs later on, but primarily like first check investors and we build conviction by ourselves, don't need a lead or anything like that. But we like introducing folks to lead investors yeah. And then also like at the future of work and future play and specifically myself as a creator, I focus a lot on creator tools. So we've invested in companies like FIPM, Palette, Impulse, which is Impulse is really sick. That's like Marlena Impulse has built a really cool, I call it the the anti-aging cream for brands, allows 
brands to get a feel for like what Gen Zers think about them and like what they'd like to see. So it's that's been really cool working with them. But a lot of the deal flows come from honestly folks reaching out from Twitter cold, cold emails, but increasingly like through the community of folks that like see a ton of stuff and they're like, oh cool, saw a creator ecosystem deal or saw an API first platform. Yeah. And and so that's been our source of proprietary deal flow. I mm-hmm. and then just like doing podcasts and speaking events has been really, really helpful because folks be like, Oh, I heard you on like X, Y, and Z podcast. And I like really liked what you had to say. And then they'll like shoot me a nice email. And I'll be like, Oh, cool. Like we'd love to talk about what you're building. So yes, content's like also a big part of it as well. Right. Right. So I, I, you mentioned a a, a few minutes ago, this idea of pattern recognition, and I think that would be an interesting lens to look at too, is in terms of, again, you seem like you have managed to accumulate a pretty large base of knowledge relative, I, I, I don't want to say for your age, but I don't know, you know what I mean? Like, like, like You can say it, you can say okay. it, I won't, you, you, I won't be offended. I would be, I would, I would love to learn, and this is just maybe for my own gratification or anything else. Like I, I use mm-hmm. Rome research and like I geek out on, on creating mental models and things like that. I would love to learn how you did it or how you would advise someone that's coming from a similar background to build up the requisite base of knowledge to look at a deal and, and know, have a sense for, Mm. oh, this will be good or bad based on what, you know, like, how did you get to that place? To look at a deal specifically is an interesting one. Like, quite frankly, I would say we're very like founder first investors. And that goes into a lot of our decision. We've been investing for around... Uh, a little less than a year out of BGV, a little more than a year and a half from me personally. But we've yeah. seen companies like change and pivot. And I think like the core of what we like to make our investment decisions is based on like the founder and the team mm-hmm. because things do shift so much at the early stages. And yeah. a lot of where I learned like how... I don't know. It's interesting. Honestly, like I'm led a lot by my gut and like my emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. So... It's hard to describe the feeling, but listening to entrepreneurs talk about the like the hardships and the passion they have for what they're building. Like for example, Chael at the last game board, when I was listening to her talk, I remember Josh had sent me the deck and I was like, Oh, this is interesting. But like wasn't like I, I wasn't like, oh, this is like for sure done deal. And then Josh was like, You have like you have to talk with her. I was like, Okay, cool. So I hop on the phone with her and she and her parents had immigrated from India in the 90s. She grew up in Manhattan, Kansas, mm-hmm. not Manhattan, New York. <laughs> and she, when she got here, like she didn't speak English. And the way that she learned how to was by playing shoots and ladders with the kids in her apartment complex. So she went on to live a whole other corporate life in Manhattan, New York. Yeah. And, but that love for gaming never left her. And, and she wanted to be able to play like, digital like she wanted to be able to play digital tabletop games yeah and there's like no technology for that and she was just like obsessed with it ended up leaving her career working at like hedge funds and things like that to pursue this passion she found out who like the chief architect and one of the founding folks the tweet behind magic leap and xbox and went to his office in denver with a six-pack of his favorite craft beer and was like Hey, I have this idea for like a digital tabletop gaming platform. Can you help me build it? And they sat and had this conversation. And like he ended up joining their team. And now they're like absolutely crushing it and are super involved in the community. And I think like when I hear stories about that of people who were just like unrelentingly following a passion or like a driving need that they had seen, that's yeah. what really sparks my interest about a deal and like some of the ways that I would say I've like learned to identify I just like read a lot when I was younger I wouldn't say I was the most popular kid in school but I like read a lot of books yeah specifically fiction and so I think like my pattern recognition for how people like show up in the world it came a lot from reading mm-hmm. I've, I've read like over a thousand books at this point and so I think that's been really helpful but yeah, I would say it's like, it's mostly about the people. Yeah. It's like a 10 year partnership that you're entering into. So it's pretty important that you like the person yeah. and are like compelled by the vision that they have. Yeah. Makes sense. You talked about syndicates before 
And mm-hmm. it does seem like it does seem like there is a I would consider a syndicate a technology, right? So like syndicates, AngelList has those uh, roll vehicles now, there's SPVs, there's yeah. a lot of um, kind of financial technology that has emerged in the last couple of years that it seems like might be one of the things that's allowed some of this to happen. So like you've got this platform, you have an interest in it, you've built a network, you have deal flow, you have all of these things. And then you've got, at least in the beginning, to develop a track record, these tools that you can leverage can you talk a little bit about what you learned maybe about that? Is that where you would recommend that folks that want to get into this world start versus like scout models or things like that? Some of the more traditional avenues that folks have gone through. Where do you see those things fit into this yeah. model? My answer to that would be it depends on the level of paperwork <laughs> that you want to do. <laughs> I, th- I think that like scout models are really great. And then like I did like a whole thread on them. If you search like page bin, my like Twitter handle and then scout, there's there's a thread that I did on it. But I think scout programs are really great when you're getting into the industry because they allow you to like build a network, learn from an established firm, hmm. have the capital on hand, not have to deal with like things like K1s and taxes, yeah. like liability <laughs> aspects. But you are also like not an employee necessarily of that firm. So you're not working there full full time. You can like do it on the side. And I think one of the things is like capital constraints. You can write smaller checks. Like folks in my syndicates were writing like 1K checks. And I have a lot of friends who would write checks that size as well into startups. And so you can get started with like less capital than you think. Mm -hmm. But I think it's all about what you want to gain from it. For me, when I found that deal, I was like, I want this to be a partnership that I have for 10 years. And I want to have this on my track record. Like this, this, this opportunity, like I want it in my portfolio and I want to be able to point to and be like, this is like, this is an example of a deal that I spotted. And so for me, a syndicate allowed me to, it was basically like the fastest way that I could collect capital and trade that for equity in the company that I was really excited about. I think it happened within a span of like three weeks or something like that. In tandem, I was like, I was DMing with Landon Ainge, who's the director of Assure Syndicates, who was super helpful in helping me set up uh, the syndicate and was like, Hey, I have no idea how to do this. Like, can you help me like with the setups? And they spin up like the LLC because it's a separate Mm -hmm. LLC for each special purpose investing vehicle or SPV. Yeah. Yeah. They also spin up like the bank account. They spin up like the LP onboarding platform. And so that was super, super helpful. And in tandem, I was DMing some folks on Twitter that I had like previously interacted with and like a venture lens that I had had like a prior existing relationship with. Cause it's like, that's uh, the framework of public solicitation is you have to have like an existing relationship with someone. Yeah. Uh, the definition of existing relationship is like <laughs> Broad. a gray yeah. Yeah. Um, area, but that's, that's how I interpreted it. And yeah, so I, I think like syndicates are really great when you want to put larger amounts of capital to work and get a feel for what it would be like running a fund because as we've been running PGB, like I used to write 50 to hundred K checks out of the syndicate. And now I'm writing a hundred to 200 K checks out of the fund. And and for me being able to be like, Oh yes, I, I have a track record four or five deals that I did before the fund, but I can prove that I can get the allocation that I want to get in these deals so that Mm -hmm. it is something that can happen again in the future. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you're doing angel checks, that's more about access. And so like, can you prove that you can get access into those deals? And then with a scout fund, I think that those are really great programs to allow you to write. Honestly, like a lot of the time, like even larger checks, like in the 250, 100, 100 to 250 K range. And you're pushing those investments through oftentimes like internal investment committees. So you have to like go through all of their steps on how they make investments, which I think can be really illuminating for folks that haven't worked inside a firm before. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. When you mentioned earning, the goal with the syndicate was to demonstrate that you could earn the allocation for folks that are considering trying to follow mm-hmm. in your footsteps and start with kind of a syndication approach first. What did maybe what have you maybe learned from doing those five or so syndicate type deals about strategies or approaches that made that more likely to happen for you? Mm, I think that 
my major learnings from the syndicates were around like how that relationship is defined between the founder and the syndicate investors and myself as the syndicate lead. So it was really about, it, it's, it's like the atomization of a venture fund. So in a venture fund, you have investors, you have a blind pool of capital that they invest in, that you invest in different companies. Mm-hmm. And so there's this really interesting like atomization dynamic when you have a syndicate because you have a group of investors that you're all pitching but you're pitching for like one specific deal. So the investors in the syndicate are still making their own informed decisions about investing. Yeah. You're like the sponsor of the deal as a syndicate organizer. And so yeah. I think it was really great practice on like that way of both like pitching a private market investment to investors, building my investor network. Mm-hmm. And then also how does my investment process work with founders? How do I make the choices of who to invest in? what are the things that I'm looking out for as an investor or I'm interested in investing in? And so that was really helpful. Is like, I don't think that you truly learn those things until you go through the process of doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, regardless of what scale it's on, I think one of the things that I took away from conversation with Johnny Steindorf, who's one of our LPs, he's a GP at Distributed Global, is he was like, the way that you do your first fund for, for him is like a 400K fund is like the way that you do all your funds. So like the learnings that you have from operating at a smaller scale will carry through as the zeros grow and as your team grows. But those like early days are really formative in terms of developing your taste for investing, your thesis, your, what you want to do for your portfolio construction. So for me, a lot of the things that I learned in the syndicate was like a process of self-discovery of like who I was as an investor. Mm Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Yeah. And then jumping to, you, you decided that you wanted to now do a, do a fund. What did, what was different about, obviously you mentioned that it's a blind pool of capital versus they're looking, so rather than looking at the deal, they're really looking at you and your track record and your, you mentioned your thesis. What else did you learn about that process of kind of raising a, especially a first time fund? Yeah. When you talk about it, as I was going through the syndicate, I think I was gaining a lot more confidence in my ability of being able to raise money for other people. And it was interesting raising a fund is like, you have to discover what your secret sauce is. And I think that's really difficult. I would like to think I'm relatively self-aware, but I have, it's hard to like, it's like that like instinctual feeling about like what's special about someone is like, you often can't put a name to it, but in raising for a fund, you have to be able to tell that story eloquently and concisely and with emotion and 500 Mm -hmm. times over. So I think I learned a lot about developing a personal narrative around who I was, who Josh was, how we worked together in the investment process. And then I, I, yeah, it's, it's been really interesting to reflect on it. It took nine months to raise, which is shorter than, than most. So usually like 12 to 18 months to raise a first time fund. And I think that there was this period where everything was going super great. So people were super familiar with like me and Josh and our stories and pitching them was like a 20 minute catch up call. And they were familiar with our work. And then we had this like doldrums where it was like, okay, cool. We have 2 million or something committed. And now we have to go out and pitch people that we've never talked to and have no context for our work. And that was a lot harder because then you really have to nail like your story, why things that you do are important. You have to like brag about yourself, which is something that I hadn't done like a lot of, or at least not specifically around having a platform because Mm -hmm. that was still developing to me. Like it hadn't become as big a part of my identity as an investor. It was just like, Oh yeah, I'm like, I tweet for fun about things that I'm interested in. Right. But when you're raising a fund, you have to like put that in graph format and like have demographic breakdowns. And it's not as less, less vibes, more strategy (laughs) involved in like how you talk about that. Yeah. And then in terms of investing, I think as we've gone through the fund, we were investing and raising at the same time. And I think that that's really difficult to be like context switching all the time between like investors. And I built a lot of empathy for founders going through the fundraising process, which is like most of what we help with as like fundraising coach, connecting you as a founder with our investors and Mm -hmm. just having empathy for what you're going through. Because if you're pitching your business to 
investors, you're going to have a different layer of abstraction and different information that you need to communicate to them than talking to a founder and pitching your support as an investor to them. Yeah. So I think that was really like doing mental acrobatics was an interesting learning time. And I think like everyone tells you fundraising is hard, but it's like, yeah, it's really hard. (laughs) And I think that those challenges are shared by anyone who goes out to raise a first time fund, even for people that had an easy in, in quotation marks time raising their first funds. And then they have to go out and raise their second fund, but they haven't like fundraised cold before. It's a really challenging process where you have to like have your story super, super sharp and, and you can't rely on like those relationships, like in context for the whole time. So I think like the more as an investor or an operator, you can put yourself out there and explain your context, the higher chance that you will enter a conversation into with enter into a conversation with someone that already has context for who you are as a person, what your values are, how you think about things. Mm-hmm. it's an incredible way of scaling your time. It's like write about who you are on the internet. Yeah, totally. So, yeah, yeah. You, um, you, uh, I think there's this idea, you, you hinted at it a little bit about ways that you add value for mm-hmm. the entrepreneur and helping them maybe round, fill, fill out the round, maybe even, I don't mm-hmm. know if you lead rounds or not, but if not helping them figure out who that is, there's this idea, especially I think with the rise of like operator angels and things like that, like traditional venture funds mm-hmm. are having to compete with folks like yourself, with operator angels. Like there's a much larger pool, especially at the early stage of, of competition mm-hmm. for deals. And so being value added almost seems, and again, it's, it's, it's an overused phrase, but it almost seems mm-hmm. like it's becoming a prereq. No, um, no, no, no. It, it is a prereq. It's like a yeah. full three slides or something in, in a fun pitch deck is like mm-hmm. you got you got team, you got market, you got problem solution, and you got value add. That's at least three slides. So it's it's like it's something from that has been talked about a lot more recently because we're seeing the pro- proliferation of folks come in at earlier and earlier stages. So yeah. I like in my opinion with the folks that I've talked to at like later stage companies like don't necessarily need like crazy active value right. add investors. Like they're right on their path, on their journey, and they need like a bit of guidance here and there. But at the early stages, when folks are getting started, it's like all hands on deck. And so it's been interesting, like at the beginning, I talked a lot about like community building and recruiting and fundraising. But now I've really narrowed down to like, I think we're pretty kick butt at fundraising. And like, that's what will help you do give you like feedback on your blurbs on your decks, make intros. And so there's some founders within our portfolio that haven't experienced that because they haven't gone out to raise like another round yet. But like the ones that have like know that we are incredibly there for them, we'll be rooting them on and like just available. I think that there's a lot of like ad hoc of just like being there and supporting folks. Mm-hmm. It's like well. too like relative to the, the the old joke of the them asking who's leading. Once you once you have a lead, I'll come in. You're you're almost like taking. Oh my god! Yeah, that's like that's my that's like one of the most hilarious phrases when I like talk to some of our portfolio founders that have like gone out to raise or like my friends that are in it. I'm just like focus on finding like the anchor lead investor because there are so many people that will just be like, oh, okay, yeah, like we'll yeah. come in when you find yeah. the lead. And for us, yeah. it's like if we like the founder and we feel we have conviction, we'll make a bet before we know who the lead is. We've done that on a bunch of deals in their portfolio, at least like the past three deals that we've done. And go uh, help them like find the a lead, month. right? I mean, it sounds like in some cases you even help them try to find a lead. Is that accurate? Yeah. I mean, they don't always end up going with like the, the folks that we introduce them to, but yeah. we try to make at least like five to 10 introductions to lead investors within our yeah. circle. I mean, for our perspective, a bunch of the folks that we fundraise from were GPs. So 50, 50 of the 120 LPs in our fund are GPs that funds themselves. Yeah. A lot of whom represent, I think you wrote, I don't know, a lot of downstream capital. And so for us, that's like, that's also part of the reason why they invest is because they want to see the deal flow that we're seeing in the companies that we have conviction in. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah. I, I would say they used to pitch a longer list, but I think we're pretty great at that. Yeah, that's cool. You mentioned that your thesis is around future of work. I'd love to learn a little bit about that in terms of it's obviously top of mind for everybody with COVID. It seems like 
things are easing, but I have to think that we're returning to something like a hybrid at, at a minimum type of model, probably in perpetuity. Like what is your, and I don't know whether that's a part of it or not, but like if, if you were to describe your unified theory of the future of work, like where do you think the world is heading and how does that maybe inform some of the investing that you're doing? One of the themes that I think a lot about is like the portfolio approach to the career. For example, like my dad is an engineer and he worked three jobs over his whole career. And I switched my major once in college, almost happened twice. And I had already had like six jobs or something by the time that I graduated. Yeah. And then after I graduated, I was like, I wanted to also be a creator as I was an operator. And I think that's like something that's shared by a lot of folks is like this portfolio approach where folks have interests that they're pursuing in different areas and want to contribute. I think there's some really interesting themes around like the ownership economy and web three is like being able to be a fan or curate something can lead to like a financial incentive down the line. So that like portfolio approach is something that I'm thinking about a lot. And then the rise of creators where people think of themselves as businesses now. And so that means that you're going to have like the same range that you have across traditional businesses today, whether that's mom and pop shops, it's like a, like a micro influencer who's doing like a couple campaigns a month to like small to medium businesses where they might have like a couple folks on their team to like, massively large enterprises like Mr. Beast, there's like different creator tools at every every point in that stack. So there's folks that are gearing towards like the like more small to medium business style creators or influencers. And then there's like a difference between what I think of as a influencer versus a creator. So in my eyes, like an influencer is someone who's more involved in like fashion and art and streetwear and, and things like that. And is like curating a lot of different either brands or a specific lifestyle image as a whole. And then creators are often producing creative work. So whether that's playwrights or authors or or podcasters, I, I see that there's like interesting classes emerging with differing like business problems that are pressing and have like real money to be put behind them. So those are some of the things that I'm thinking about in future of work. Honestly, like the the hybrid thing is interesting to me. We were talking about this before we uh, started recording, but I graduated in 2020. And so I don't really have any context for like what it's like to work in an office (laughs) in a city and like have work friends. I I worked at a remote startup and then I started the fund. So I worked pretty much by myself and I'm like semi-nomadic. And so like that's my normal. And so I'm constantly seeking out things that... For other folks, that might be their normal as well. So I'm always yeah. interested to see what other solutions folks have to that. But, but yeah, this I would say like that portfolio career is something I'm thinking a lot about. And then the rise of the creator, the yeah. rise of the person as a business. Yeah. Well, there, it seems like you mentioned Web3. It seems like the emergence of the, the DAO as an organizing model ties into some of that portfolio stuff where it's like one could theoretically be, have, be employed, quote unquote, for... Mm-hmm. half a dozen DAOs at any given time. And I'm sure there's gonna be a ton of carnage as people figure out the right way and wrong way to do those things. But I would have to think, it seems like Web3 is a focus of yours, if not as an investor, certainly as 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 something that you're interested in. How do you how do you think about, I mean, you mentioned you mentioned the creator aspect of it. I would imagine obviously NFTs play a role in that, but like what how do you how do you how do you think about Web3 as it ties into some of this stuff and and I guess I'd also be curious just how in the world do you stay on top of it without like, I got to like, I think I got to like 12 Discord servers I was in and my brain exploded. I just can't, it is the definition of a fire hose. Like, how do you stay on top of it? I mean, one of the things that I think about a lot is my experience in iMouthI. For those of your listeners <laughs> not familiar, iMouthI was an internet movement that happened in June of 2020. It was me and 68 other folks, most of whom were recent graduates from underrepresented demographics. Yeah. We had, someone had started a group chat on Twitter and they were just like, oh, put IMFI like in your, in your bio, in, in your header. Started doing this and like Twitter's a networking tool. And so people like see it and then they're like, oh, what's that? What's up? Blah, 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 blah. And then we were, we were like in this crazy discord and it was just going, going, going for like 48 hours. Like it was crazy trying to make decisions on like, 
what the brand stood for, what we were doing. We had this massive Figma board. We launched a merch store. There was folks working on this on like almost every continent. And I think that that was my first understanding of like how communities could really build things together on the internet. And it's like, it's not perfect. It can be messy at times, but you can have like an outsized impact even in a short amount of time. It was yeah. like 48, 48 hours or something like that and 69 people and most of whom this was not a full-time job for. But we ended up raising over $200,000 for organizations supporting Black Lives. That's something I've, I was super you know, proud to be a part of. And I met a ton yeah. of folks through there who I ended up supporting as an investor later on and, and have just like, and continuously rooting for. So yeah. that, that shaped a lot of my thinking around DAOs. Like I think that there's still a lot of things to be sorted out and I'm like keeping a close eye on Web3. And I, I really want to like look at like the on-ramp. So how can we get more more people onto Web3? Yeah. How can we use that technology in an underlying way to solve a problem that's been plaguing folks that is having specific challenges implemented in a Web2 area, but the interface might not be as crypto-native? Because I still think there's a level of technical fluency that's not held by most folks. Like It's, it's hard yeah. to be as technically fluent as it is to like keep up with crypto. And so yeah. I think a lot about like, if I'm new to the space, like what are the first tools that I'm using? Yeah. How am I finding my information? So honestly, there's like, I would say there's some incentives around being like still a bit out on the edge and being like, what's going on? Because you can find out like what sticks out from, yeah. from that perspective. Yeah. Getting your, getting your first, first tokens and going through KYC and then getting, getting a wallet, which is different and that messes with people's brains and then going cross chain and all that kind of stuff. Like it just, until there is a faction, at least in, in crypto that I think believes that this could be very empowering for a whole, it could unlock wealth for like a whole new generation of people that who couldn't participate before. But to your point, in order for them to actually accomplish that, the learning curve has to become much gentler, I would think. Is that kind of what you mean by that? Yeah. Well, I mean, just like more education in the space and then like the inclusivity part is really important to me. So yeah, it's like one thing I, I would say I'm like watching it closely and have participated a lot from a personal standpoint, but there's also some like fund can't have more than 20% of your assets in things other than equity. The also like the legal agreements are still a bit early in terms of like investing in DAOs. And so that's like something in, in parallel that we're thinking about. So we've, when we've invested in Web3 companies in the past, we usually invest on like a safe with a, with a warrant on, on top of it. That's like a warrant for future token purchases, which I think mm -hmm. is interesting. But I, I think like, a level of thought and discipline around the liquidity aspect of it is important to us when looking at opportunities in the space because we are responsible to our investors to make fiduciary decisions that align with what we said that we were going to do. And a lot of that revolves around like understanding what that looks like from a fund yeah. investment perspective. It does seem like if you could, if, if they can evolve or get more clarity on what is and isn't allowed in, in, in terms of investing in this space as a fund, one of the huge benefits mm -hmm. seems like the liquidity piece of it, where it's like like outcomes can be less yeah. binary for your investors, right? That seems pretty Yeah, important. and I think like uh, we have a bunch of investors who have been like early in crypto. So I've been t learning a lot from them, like Bobby Goodlight at Form Capital, Johnny Steindorf at Distributed Global, David Carrico and Judy Estrin do a lot in Web3, mm -hmm. and Bree at Next Ep Epic. Yeah, so I, I like, I enjoy learning from folks in my community that have been in the space for a lot lot longer than me and have more deep context that's like not written down anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. You mentioned the upper underrepresented thing. I, I don't remember where I saw this, but my understanding is that the syndicate, the venture fund, the book, all of these things roll up into this high level to the degree that you have sort of like a vision for your life. It's this idea around empower, empowering younger, younger folks, but especially underrepresented folks to become investors. And I was just curious, like what, what is it, what's driving that? And why do you think venture um, specifically is where, where folks should consider playing or more and more folks should consider playing? What is it about venture that you think makes sense for folks to, to try to break into? Yeah. So honestly, I think venture has gotten a really bad rap for being as like exclusive as it has been. I think it was like, it started as a cottage industry and it was just yeah. like friends investing in friends. And now it's morphed into a professional 
career that, that people do for like the rest of their lives. And I think that there is some stigma around there being like a level of exclusivity that I think needs to be broken down. And I think education is the way that I can best contribute to that. And mm -hmm. I think that it's an incredibly powerful tool that uh, enables economic outcomes for folks that don't come from generational wealth to have tremendous impact in them and their family and their community's lives. So yeah, I'm really passionate about getting folks like more educated on like what the opportunities are within venture and how they can take part in it. I think that it's a running theme as well in, in Web3, but I think that like there is so much opportunity in venture and there's so much attention on like diversity in venture. And sure, some aspect of that might be diversity theater, but like there are people who are looking for underrepresented folks to fund. And mm -hmm. especially like on the fund manager side, it's like yeah. 11% of partners in venture are women, 2% of like general partners that run funds are, are women. So it's like folks are looking for places to allocate to folks. Yeah. It's just like there needs to be more and it takes time. And so like by starting with education, I think that we can hopefully have an impact to get more folks like interest in venture. Yeah, that makes sense. I, the, there was an interview, I think that Balaji did with Tim Ferriss a couple of months ago, and he was talking about this idea, it was around this around the topic of like basic universal income and things like that, and like what the future looks like. And he obviously thinks about what the world looks like. One of the things that he said that was really compelling to me and made me think of folks like you is this idea of he sees a much more he sees it more like everybody becomes a capital allocator in the future. And so even if you are yeah have a job, I like you said, that. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it just seems like you're playing a role in equipping people, even if it's, even if it's not the only thing that they do, or even if they just decide I'm going to participate as an LP or I'm going to join a syndicate or whatever it is, it seems like you're creating mm -hmm. kind of like you said, on ramps for web three, you're creating on ramps for people, more people to get involved in venture, which is kind of neat. No, I really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for yeah, having me, Sean. This was really, really great for folks that want to learn more about what you're up to. Where should I send them? My Twitter is probably the best place. That's page bin with three N's. Very cool. All right, Paige, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much yeah. for having me. My guest today was Paige Doherty. For more ideas on how to disrupt your own organization, visit us at manifold.group. And if you enjoyed this episode, we would love a review on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform you use. That's it for today. We thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.